Good morning and happy new year. So let's open class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, as we come to the end of 2017, we want to reflect back with thanksgiving on all that you've done for us this year, bringing us through another year. And as we look forward to a new year, we, we dedicate ourselves to you and ask that your spirit will enlighten and power and direct us in this coming year that we can fulfill the purpose you have for each of us. Bless us today as we study that we might draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements for those who don't know, we have a free app that you can get in your app store and it's come in reason and it's got our logo on it so you'll recognize it. And through that app, you can access our, our class Bible studies, but also I've been uh, starting doing weekly blogs again and those blogs are going to be available through the app and you can get them that way as well. So I want to remind people there's a free app available. Today we're doing lesson two in the uh, quarterly stewardship uh, motives of the heart, and the title is, I See, I Want, I Take. And if you look at uh, Sunday's lesson, starting with the first paragraph, then we'll read the fourth, it says, a popular television preacher has a simple message, God wants to bless you, and the proof of his blessing is the abundance of material possessions that you own. In other words, if you're faithful, God will make you wealthy. The theology of the prosperity gospel teaches that in giving to God, we gain in return a guarantee of material wealth. But this makes God into a vending machine and turns our relationship with him into nothing but a deal. I do this, and you promise to do that in return. We give not because it is the right thing to do, but because of what we get in return. This is the prosperity gospel, or that's the prosperity gospel. So what level of moral development is that? Anybody remember? That's level two. That's right. That's the, the, uh, the marketplace exchange. Let's make a deal with God. You, I'll do this, and God is uh, obliged to, to return to me. That's a little too much mature. And it's one step above the, if I don't do what God says, he'll, he'll punish me. So it's, it's, and, and this is the, the child who moves past, I brush my teeth because mommy will punish, to mommy, if I brush my teeth, will you read me a bedtime story? I've moved, moved to level two. Let's make a deal. Why is this not the right way to think? Or, what is the problem with this type of thinking in our relation with God? It's based on selfishness. So the motive is primarily about what I can get. So the motive of the heart is self-centered. That, that's a big problem. That's probably the first and primary problem. But what happens to people who approach life this way when they do what they think they're required in the deal? I've given my tithe faithfully but they don't get back what they're expecting. What happens in their relationship, in their heart, in their minds, when they don't think God fulfilled his side of the bargain? It hardens. Interesting, isn't it? Do they become more compassionate, usually more kind, more patient? Or do they get resentful and angry and hostile? They feel cheated. Life's not fair. God doesn't really care. He's not really there. They feel like they've been lied to. Well, they have. Their view of God and how he works is, is a lie. But, in light of Bible promises, isn't, in fact, this the right way to think? If we pay our tithe, he blesses us. Aren't we to believe what the Bible says? For instance, Malachi three ten through 12. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in, in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out to you, so much blessing that you will not have room to, enough to receive it. 
I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your field will not cast out their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be the delight, a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So in fact, isn't this the right way to think? If you pay your tithe, then God makes you wealthy. I spent decades thinking that being blessed only meant monetarily blessed. I I didn't think about being blessed with health. I didn't think about being blessed with a a correct understanding of who God is. I didn't think about being blessed um, with any any variety, you know, rain for food. My only thought was blessing must mean wealth. So you put in the vending machine money. You expect to get money out. Okay, I think that's called the slots. <laughs> so, no, I, I like where you're going. You're expanding possibilities here that God can bless us in ways other than monetarily. The bottom green section, let's, let's see if we can't add some more cognitive dissonance here. Because some people read this, and they read the Bible very, what I call, concretely. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Who am I to question? The Bible said it. That's the way it is. Like train up a child the way you should go. I mean, how many... Times, you know, we've quoted that. How many times, how many parents have been uh, mistreated by that verse because of its mistranslation? Yeah. So, the bottom green section asks us, what examples can you find of those who were faithful to God but are not rich in worldly possessions and those who were not faithful to God but who were rich in worldly possessions? So, let's just... And now the, the question of the lesson, for those who don't realize what they're doing, they're asking you to be an evidence-based thinker. Okay, The promise is a declaration, a proclamation. Many um, believers in God never move past proclamation-based thinking. Well, the Bible said it. I believe that settles it. That's a proclamation. I can't understand. I just have to take it as it reads. But the lesson is suggesting we should become evidence-based thinkers. Okay, the Bible says that, but what is the evidence that has happened and transpired through history is my understanding of what I hear being proclaimed, meaning that if I pay my tithe, I get more wealth. Is that what it actually means? Well, if that's what it means, then life should show that how it turns out, right? So what about Jesus? Righteous life? Was he wealthy in material things? He didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. No. How about the apostles? Righteous? Were they wealthy in material things? Job, of course, was rich at one point in time, lost all his wealth, and of course, his friends came and said, it's proof that you've sinned. And of course, the whole lesson of Job is, no, this didn't happen to you because you did wickedly. This was for another reason. There's a war going on in this universe, and righteous suffer. How about King Herod? Was he wealthy? But unrighteous. Caesar, wealthy, unrighteous. So, the evidence of how reality works does not support the interpretation that if I pay my tithe faithfully, then I'm guaranteed wealth. doesn't support that. <coughs> is this a contradiction in Scripture? The Scripture is contradicting itself by showing us life histories that don't fit what the proclamation says? Well, how do you then harmonize these two? How do you harmonize Malachi with the historical record of people's lives. How do you balance those two? What's the harmony? The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Okay, this is quoting from Jesus in one of his sermons. What kind of law is sunshine? Okay, and it says the rain comes, same, 
Same design law. Yeah, so who created the laws? What kinds of laws? The natural laws God created. There you go. And the design laws don't discriminate. Gravity works for righteous and unrighteous. The sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. So when we have design law, this, this is the real key to understanding these types of things. Is what reality lens are you looking through? Are you saying that the Lord does not bless a faithful giver? That's a good question. Thanks for clarifying that. Did I say the Lord does not bless the faithful giver? Is that a natural law? Is it a natural law? I think it's both. If the farmer plants seed in his field and he gets a crop, does the Lord bless him with his crop? Is that blessing from the Lord or is that blessing from his work? It's both. Oh, it's a design law. You reap what you sow. The only thing that kind of confuses me is back in the 60s and 70s, I used to do accounting. And uh, we had, uh, me and a partner had 300 tax clients. <clears throat> and about the second year we were doing this, I started noticing something and we started keeping records between the two of us, because we were both Adventists, and, and about half of our clients were Baptists. And uh, we started looking at what they gave and compared to the rest of their tax return. Uh, back then, you had to have 2% of your income to pay for medical expenses before you could deduct it. And it was 80% of the people that gave it what looked like an honest tithe had no medical expenses, whereas those that did not give an honest tithe for their deductions, 80% of them had enough medical deductions to deduct. So what's the conclusion that you're being led to consider? It made me see that the Lord blesses those to give. <laughs> okay, I love this. So let me explain this. Do you see an arbitrary God saying, well, they gave, so I'm going to use my divine power to make sure they're healthy, and I'm going to use my design power over here to make sure they get sick. Is that what we see happening? No. <laughs> or do we see design law at work? If you were to look at the lives of the people who were giving more to charity, would you notice any other behavioral and lifestyle differences? You actually mentioned Adventists and Baptists. Are there, would we reasonably conclude that somebody who's giving a faithful tithe is probably going to be more in harmony with the lifestyle principles of Adventism than those who don't? So they'd be more likely vegetarian, less likely to smoke, less likely to drink, more likely to, to uh, exercise than the Baptists would, and, and less pork, less meat. All of those things are health laws that result in better physical health. Direct consequences, well proven. Baptists had the same benefit that, that the Adventists had. The, the same benefit of they didn't drink alcohol? Well, I don't know. but they didn't, eat, they didn't eat meat? They were vegetarian? It didn't make a difference what denomination they were. It seemed to be the same. Oh, I see. If they paid a faithful tithe, yes. And so I would say the same thing, though. Within, uh, within any Christian culture, the more devout they are, the more they take seriously their responsibilities in self-governance, number one. So they're more likely to be physically healthy. Two, second principle. If they are a religious person and they actually live under conviction, the belief that the tithe is the Lord's, and they don't give the tithe, what will happen psychologically and then neurobiologically? You will come under guilt 
activating the guilt because you are a Christian believing that the tithe is the Lord's, but you're not returning it to the Lord, that results in activation of the stress pathways, which activate immune system, which activate inflammatory cascades, which cause insulin resistance, which cause high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, and health problems. A direct consequence for not living in harmony with God's design neurobiologically. And this would happen for any sin. A man who cheats on his wife would have the same thing. A person who pays their full tithe, but they embezzle from their employer would have the same thing. So I still see this as a design consequence. And now we also have done studies looking at people who are altruistic. Senior citizens, people over age 65, who volunteer their time. Now this is not looking at tithe, this is just looking at giving, which tithe is a form of giving. But if they volunteer their time in the community in some way, Those who are volunteers in a regular way have less um, physical health problems, they have less hospitalizations, less depression, um, less physical disabilities, less dementia, and stay out of nursing homes longer than those who don't volunteer. And neurobiologically, the reason for that is when you actually volunteer to help other people, you activate your anterior cingulate cortex, and when you activate your anterior cingulate cortex, it turns off your amygdala, which is your fear circuitry, which lowers inflammatory cascades, which results in better physical health. Love is actually healing to the being. So again, I would say that's living in harmony with God's design, and we live in harmony with God's design as life, and so this is still design law stuff. It's not God in heaven magically doing something, but there is a blessing. Can Satan not bless for the opposite reason what God would bless, but can, can Satan not cause good things to happen to bad people? Okay, so it depends on what you mean by and define by bless. I'm going to say Satan cannot bless. Satan can reward. Okay, reward. He cannot bless. If you understand a blessing is always for your good, always for your eternal best interest, the blessings that come from God, Satan cannot. But Satan can reward. Yes, but not bless. Uh, do you have a comment? I was going to say, to me, what you're describing is correlation, not causation. Blessings and, and pain tithe, for example, they're correlated. But the bidding machine example is causation. Right. You do X, you get Y. Right. And we can infer from our understanding of some of the things I said that they're, that the giving, and I would suggest it would be interesting to look at people who have no belief in God and their giving versus those who have a belief in God, and then separate those two outcomes out and see if there's a difference there. Because my, my hypothesis that I put forward is that they're doing something that goes against their conscience, and that's what's causing guilt, and that's what's causing the negative consequence. I have a friend that's an Adventist. Her husband isn't. He has a business. He didn't pay tithe for years. And then he said to his wife, I'm going to try paying tithe this year and just see what happens. You know? And he did. And his business increased almost double than what it had. Okay. Just... And one possibility is God, behind the scenes, sent angels to people, began prompting them to bring business to this guy as a reward. That's one possibility. Another possibility is this guy who became under conviction now has a demeanor where he promotes an atmosphere of honesty and integrity, where before he had an undercurrent of of uh, fear and insecurity and maybe dishonesty that was coming through, not in his words, but in how he acts. And if you have ever dealt with certain used car salesmen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can feel the, the negative energy that they're promoting versus somebody who has a real honest integrity about them. And so one possibility is that his whole demeanor and integrity changed, and that resulted in people responding to his, his change in internal attitude versus God making it happen on the outside. Again, and, and, and again... And or both. 
I think we can look at evidence of history where God clearly uses his power to bring blessings and resources to certain people for certain uses or certain causes. He intervenes in ways to, to lift up and bring attention to his movements or the choices that this person is making. Those things happen. But I don't think the Malachi passage is simply about only external interventions from God. Yes? I was going to think about the uh, parable of the talents. You know, the, the outcome of that was that he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. So the concept that if um, that if, if somebody does have the ability and shows good management over uh, management of their, their being, that ultimately, and if they're in accordance ultimately with God and through that process, I think that they also, uh, God will bless them in the fact that they can manage little so they can manage much. So I think there is, I, I think you were saying, a perfect balance of that. So how I view the Matthew example that you're giving there about the talents is a description of design law called the law of exertion. If you have a talent that you have been gifted with, whether it was from innate genetics or a gift of the spirit, and you begin exercising and using that ability... You have a talent of art, and you take art lessons, and you practice your trade, and you do more and more for hours and hours, What hap- or music, or whatever your talent might be, mathematics and accounting or whatever. What happens to your capacities to do that as you apply yourself to it? Do they expand? Do you get more? Do you even expand domains? Perhaps you started out with one medium of art, and as you practice it, you've, you've expanded into another medium. You're adding a talent. Okay, this is neurobiology. We can see in people's brain scans as they apply themselves, they develop circuitry that wasn't there before. Their capacities and abilities are are expanded as they invest. However, the person who has a talent, a raw talent, ability, but they never develop, they don't use it. What happens over time? If you don't use it, you? Is this God acting from his divine throne and inflicting these consequences? Or is this a result of the law of exertion? Do you want something to get stronger? You must exercise it. Yes. I see in, in that passage in Malachi also, though, a promise of divine protection. And there are, you know, and the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and live with them, etc. But you also look at the story about Elisha and his servant and opening his eyes and whatnot. There is a presence of protection that God gives to his, his people. So let's... You, you brought that up. I didn't have it in my notes, but I think it fits in with having this conversation. Because the, 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 the negative side of what you said, because it's absolutely true, he sends his angels to hold back the four winds of strife. Uh, he, we, he battles against the principalities and powers of darkness. He's interceding with evil forces. With Yes, the hedge of protection is there for the righteous. That's true. Does that mean when we're having a special event and uh, you know uh, uh, a gathering and people are coming a long distance and somebody gets killed in a car wreck here? Well, there must have been some sin in their life that the Lord couldn't protect them on the trip. You hear this, don't you? There's the implication is there. And this is the negative side of that idea that if something bad happens uh, to somebody, well, therefore, then, then they, they, they weren't being protected by God because they had some sin and God, God was restrained by their sin. Well, Job refutes that too. Job clearly refutes that. Righteous man, righteous, perfect and righteous in all his ways, a declaration from heaven. This is a judgment of God on his character. And then all this terrible stuff happens to him. 
And it didn't happen because he was unrighteous. But yes, we do see a hand of protection was being removed, but it wasn't being removed because of sin in his life. There was other purposes going on. And I think while it's true, in a general sense, God has his hand around us. And this also goes to miracle healings. Many people believe if you have great faith, you get miracles. I refute that in the book, The God-Shaped Brain, a whole section in that book, where I actually point out, if you look at the evidence-based thinking of the Bible, miracles almost always, look at them all, just make a list of all the miracles, almost always happen through the strong in faith, but for the weak in faith. The miracles are not for the strong in faith. The strong in faith don't need the miracle. So you look at the apostles, only one of the apostles had a miraculous, life-sustaining miracle uh, that saved their life at the end, of, and they died of old age. It was John. The rest of them were martyred. God didn't perform a miracle to save their life. Now, there were miracles performed to let them out of prison and, and other things for a purpose, but eventually, Peter was crucified. He wasn't miraculously saved. And you will see most of them, Gideon, the fleece, was the miracle for Gideon because he had such strong faith or his faith was weak and it needed encouragement. And you will find this idea again. The strong in faith are faithful even when there's no miracle. They trust him. They know there's a, there's a larger picture, a bigger reality, a God who's ultimately trustworthy and they can say, hey, if, if my Stephen, strong in faith, gets stoned, if my death, Lord, in the larger landscape of reality can bless your cause, brings conviction to Saul who's holding the coats and Saul is now his conscience eating at him. He saw this righteous man being stoned and then a few you know, weeks later on the Damascus Road, he's ready for conversion. If my death has a larger purpose and then, and then Paul writes close to uh, half the New Testament or a bunch of the New Testament and how many millions have been reached because of that, do you trust him enough or do you say, no, I've got strong faith. Uh, these rocks are going to bounce off me like foam. And I think so many times when we talk about these things, we, it really is an issue of trust, isn't it? And so back to what you were saying, Russell, about the blessings of Malachi are not restricted to simply financial blessings. And so the more you give, the more you receive, if, if and only, what's the, what's the one thing that's a requirement for you to receive more? Thank you. If and only you give from a heart of love. Because when you give from a heart of love, you absolutely, every time, guarantee to receive more love from God. More love from God. Because God has more to give it. No, God's infinite in love. Because as you give more love, you're open to receive more love. That's how it works. If you stop giving love, you close your heart to receive more love. Let's go to Monday's lesson. And this was a great questions, everybody. Thank you. First paragraph, we don't need the Bible to teach us the one obvious truth. The cares of this life and its riches are temporary. Nothing here lasts, and certainly not long either. As Paul said, we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What is not seen that you look upon? God. Perfect. And where do you look to see God? We look at things not seen, so where are you looking to see God? In your mind. That's very Eastern of you. That's the Eastern approach. How do I find God? I look inward. Not inward. You use inward, but it's not inward focused. Okay. You're not looking into your own mind. You're using your mind to look where? Situations in your life. 
Okay, life circumstances. Can we see God working in life, places, and circumstances, and situations? So where else do we look? In his word. Oh, in the word of God, for sure. Pause on the word of God question. Because you're right, we absolutely, greatest revelation of God we see in the word, and the greatest revelation in the word is in the life of Jesus. If you see me, you see the Father. So absolutely, we look there. To, but do you ever find people who hold the Bible up as their source of knowing God that they seem to worship a different God than you? How is it that happens that they go to the same word, they quote the same verses, but they have a completely different construct of the, be, of the character and nature and the methods of God than you do? How does that work? And they're looking at it through their filters, their own experience and what they expect to see. Okay, I like where you're going with that, yeah. You have certain lenses on, then it colors what you see, doesn't it? Any other, any other? so Bible, life experiences? Where, nature, Romans one twenty. yes. And when you look into nature, do you ever contemplate and, and say, what am, I, what am I learning about God? How do I see the invisible hand of God here? Do you ever contemplate that? I, I do that sometimes. I'll just sit and I'll look out into nature and I'll start seeing what I'm seeing and start thinking about the invisible hand of God that you can't see. And you can think on all different levels. You can think about the magnetic forces at work, the nuclear forces at work, the gravitational forces at work. You can't see any of those. The electrical forces at work. Where are they all coming? What are they teaching? How do they operate? Do we learn something from God from these things? You can, you can see the the instinctual forces at work. So some, one of the things we look that's not seen, we look to find God. Is there anything else we look at that is unseen that we're looking to see? The way the Holy Spirit works on people's lives. I think we talked about that earlier with the people's experience, but even within, your, within yourself, you, know, you can see the difference that it makes in you. The Holy Spirit is unseen like the wind, but you can perceive a change of your reactions to things, your interest in spiritual things. So I like where you're going with that. When we said God a moment ago, I was really kind of in my mind thinking of the God the Father. I wasn't thinking of God the Holy Spirit or God the Son. So now you're talking about a member of the Godhead. Yes, I love that. And when we see the Holy Spirit working in a heart, what else are we seeing? Or should I say, who else are we seeing? Are we seeing anyone besides the Holy Spirit when we see that? We see Jesus. The Holy Spirit always talks about Jesus. Yes, this, Jesus said that the Comforter will come. He's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak what he hears, and he's going to take what's mine, and he's going to make it known to you. So when you see a life change, when you see somebody who has been living for self, exploited of others, and suddenly they are really changed. They're other-centered. They're compassionate. They're kind. They're mature. They're honest. You see this change. Yes, that's the work of the Spirit, but the work of the Spirit in doing what? Isn't it bringing Christ into the heart, into the life? Whenever you see self, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for each other. If you see self-sacrificial love at work where somebody puts themselves, and I get a lot of these stories in the God-shaped heart, if you read that book, a lot of these stories, do you recognize you're seeing the invisible work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Even for those who have not identified themselves as Christian. See, my hypothesis and my premise is you cannot, sinful human beings cannot generate other-centered love. We can't do that in our strength. Whenever you see genuine other-centered love at work, it's evidence of the power of God at work. Even in people who haven't yet identified themselves as Christian. Something invisible. 
How about, do you look ever look besides at the three members of the Godhead and their work? Go, go ahead. That also goes for when you see someone who has self-control. Yes, and that's coming up in our lesson. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. When you see that being practiced. But do you ever look and to the promised future restoration where there's, you know, it says in Hebrews how we long, our citizenship isn't, we long for a, 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 a land that is a different land. Do you ever look to the invisible, the thing not yet realized, the, the new heavens and the new earth? Do you ever contemplate that, what that might be like? Absolutely. And when you do, does it inspire you to live differently? Yes. In the lesson, Helen Keller's statement in the middle of the lesson, it says, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but has no vision. And Jesus, maybe you can recognize maybe where Helen Keller got that wisdom, in Matthew 13, 13 through 17, says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not, even what he has will be taken from him. Pause. I'm going to stop right in the middle of my Bible passage here and ask, was Jesus making an arbitrary decision? I have decided that I will give more to those who have a lot already, and I'm going to take what little the poor have from them. Is that what's happening? She says, sounds like that. Or is Jesus simply describing a design law? The law of laws of both worship by beholding we become changed, and exertion. Keep going. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Notice, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their... They might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are, are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you hear design law being described here, or do you hear simply arbitrary rules? A powerful potentate making things happen the way he wants them to go. Is God restrictive with whom he shares truth with? No. This parable was directly in the aftermath, in between his explanation, of the parable of the sower. These words I just read, he gave the parable of the sower, these words, and then he explains the words to the apostles. So this is connected to the parable of the sower. Now, go through that with me. In the parable of the sower, what's the soil represent? Hearts and minds of people. Yes, what does the seed represent? The gospel is one way to say it. Truth is another way to say it. Yes, truth, gospel. Was the sower in the parable restrictive on what soil the seed was cast upon? No, truth is spread widely to all peoples, to all hearts. Why did the seed grow in some and not in others? Why did the truth take root in some and not the others? Because the sower was restrictive? Uh, condition of the soil. Condition of the soil is what made the difference. The nature of the hearts and minds. Some people don't want the truth. They resist it. They reject it. They don't value it. And thus they don't want to understand and comprehend it. 
My wife gave me a t-shirt once that said, I can explain it to you, I can't understand it for you. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is great, yes. Russell, do you want to make a comment? Yeah, you know, I, I got thinking about your question. I think God does sometimes restrict the amount of truth, but it's, it's for our benefit. Not saving truth. Not saving truth. Not truth that saves. Not truth that brings. That truth is not restricted. Sometimes, though, he has much to tell us along the journey we can't yet handle. So, yes, yes, he waits to. Right, but but that that doesn't mean that the truth that brings people the knowledge of salvation is restricted. Okay, so I just said people sometimes don't want the truth. Why? Why would people not want truth? Because it had to change the lifestyle and stuff. Because it would overturn some idea or belief they currently value, which would result in something initially for them being unpleasant. I'll give you some examples. Loss of pride or ego, if they had already been on public record with one view, and now they have to recant or retract that view. Pride won't let them. Loss of relationship. If they are in either friendships or romantic relationships that are unhealthy and the truth is this is an unfit relationship, they might have to end. I see this with adolescents who have friends and the adolescent in my office has got an addiction problem and they need to cut those relationships with the sources of uh, their substance. They don't want that because they they'll miss their friends. They don't want to go through that. Loss of income if some truth would require a person to quit a job. Loss of power, if they have to resign a position. That may not be income. It may be position in an organization. They're, they're maybe they on a church board or something. Loss of perceived security, if they had to surrender a false belief system that they were currently getting security from. Change in diet or lifestyle. Quit smoking. Give up marijuana. Stop drinking sodas. Start exercising. Change your sleep patterns. All this stuff I deal with my patients all the time. They've got these unhealthy practices. And to change them is uncomfortable for a period of time. And so they resist the truth. The big one I see right now is, is late adult college students who smoke marijuana, who resist evidence and truth that marijuana is damaging to your brain. There's a lot of myth out there because marijuana can have some narrow medical applications. They resist the, the truth that it can also harm and cause it's neurotoxic. They don't want the truth. Not because they have a medical condition they need treatment for, because they want the buzz that they're getting. The lesson states that blurred spiritual eyesight puts eternal salvation in jeopardy. When you heard that blurred spiritual eyesight, did any other Bible text jump to your mind? Yes. Oh, when I think of that, I think of friends of mine that have grown up Adventists but didn't really know the truth about God. So when they got older, they left. Now when they hear the truth, they have this big load of all the do's and don'ts that they associate with following Jesus. Um, and they, they struggle to accept Jesus, because it comes with this big wagon load of what they have to do. So many people are being burdened by a distortion. And if they could actually hear the truth, in that context, the truth would set them free. And many people who value what we teach here have experienced that very thing. I used to be burdened by this legalistic, rules-oriented, and now, finally, the truth, I see it. What I was told before was, was 
And that's what Jesus, of course, you look at the Jewish system 2,000 years ago, he was throwing off all these burdens they had put on that made life so hard. Yeah. So any text come to mind about the blurred spiritual eyesight? Well, what came to my mind was Revelation 3, 15 through 17, about the church to Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Get your mind around that. This is Jesus speaking to the churches. Jesus is saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. This is spiritual cold. But not lukewarm. Have you ever realized that Jesus wished some people would get more cold spiritually? Did you ever realize that? Yeah, because then they wouldn't be representing him under false. Ah, I like where you're going with that. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The word there is emeo from where we get emetic or emesis. It means to vomit. In other words, it's a sickening, nauseating to him to see what he's seeing. So it really should say, I vomit you out of my mouth, not spit. You say, I am rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white, sa- white clothes to wear so you can cover the, your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now, what does it mean to be lukewarm in this context? Well, think if you got water. How do you get lukewarm water? Mixing hot and cold. Mixing hot and cold. Mixing hot and cold together, you get lukewarm. So spiritually, what is a mixture of hot and cold? What, what would that be? Mixing lies and truth. Truth and error. And how about would it look something like this? People who seem to be in their public persona hot on fire for the Lord, but have never really gotten rid of selfishness in their heart. Big hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, yes. Phariseeism in all of its forms. People who are hyper-religious but cruel and unkind, and will be judgmental, demeaning, critical, unkind, hurt people in the name of their religion. Because the Lord demands it of us. On fire for the Lord, but without love. I think this is what it really is talking about. People like that would excuse those actions on the basis that it's just. There you go. Because they have the false law concept, the human law concept. That's right. But the Bible says we are, when we, and we, and we think we're all righteous because we're keeping all the rules and we, and we claim the legal covering and all that kind of stuff. So we think we're good because it's all legal. We're not really, but we're counseled to buy from Christ gold refined in the fire, white raiment, or white clothes, and eye salve. How do we buy it? Yes. I thought the gifts from Christ were free. Here we're told we have to buy it. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, it's how do you buy it? Can you buy it with money? No. You buy it with hard works. There's one way to purchase this, and that's the barter system. And what is the barter system? What is how does barter work? You exchange something, right? And we exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness, our selfishness for his love, our terminal condition for his eternal life. Our guilt and shame for his holiness and perfection. But how do you exchange it? You exchange it by coming into a trust relationship and surrendering your life to him. And you give up on 
protecting self, promoting self. You surrender your life into his hands. My life is yours. I don't want to do my thing anymore, Lord. I want to do your thing. My life's in your hands. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I have a new heart and right spirit written on the tablets of my own heart, the Lord's law. You see, we cannot receive the righteousness of Christ as long as we hold to our own selfishness. In reality. In the legal model, you can have that. In fact, the legal model teaches it. Because God will declare you to be righteous even though you're not. But see, that's why, that's the Laodicea group. We feel we're rich and have all these good things, but we're wretched, pitiful, blind, because we've missed the diagnosis. We think our problem is legal rather than a condition of being. This way we must buy from him, and how do we buy? We have to surrender our selfishness to receive his righteousness. We cannot receive spiritual eyesight as long as we stay focused on self and refuse truth. We cannot experience life as long as we cling to the law of sin and death, which is the survival of the fittest principle, me first. Tuesday's lesson talks about the steps of covetousness. First off, is coveting bad? Depends on what you covet. Thank you. Thank you. She says, depends on what you covet. 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one. It says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way. And he goes to show love. So coveting, is, is it a bad thing? Well, it depends on what one covets and the motive for the coveting. In other words, if the motive is selfish, coveting, coveting what another person has, then it's sinful. But if the motive is godly, coveting gifts from God in order to fulfill God's purpose of revealing him and helping others, I want to be more like you, Jesus. I covet loving, compassion so I can help people. Then it's godly. Another way to do, say this, covet actually just means having a strong desire for something. So when the commandment is saying, don't have a strong desire, don't covet, it's talking about coveting things that are not yours or not intended for you to have. Thus, it's healthy to covet or desire anything that you don't currently possess, now here's the caveat, that God has designed to be yours. Like a new heart and a right spirit like a spirit of confidence and peace instead of timidity, like a mind of wisdom and discernment, like a deeper love relationship with Jesus, like eternal life and a land made new. It's, it's absolutely righteous to covet the things that God has designed for you to possess. But it is sinful because it's coming from a selfish heart to covet or desire anything that is not within God's design for you to possess, like your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's position, his abilities, her esteem in the hearts of other people, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Does that make sense to you? It's okay to covet or long or desire the things God has designed to be yours, even if you don't possess them yet. I want to be wiser, God. I design, I desire to, to have greater knowledge of you. Well, we covet a character like Christ. We covet a character like Christ. He's designed for us to have that. That's okay. The coveting becomes, or the desire becomes a problem when we begin coveting things that is not in his design to be ours. 
And so one of the ways the devil gets people to covet the stuff that is not designed to be yours is by promoting the idea of comparing yourself to other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. You're unique. You have a unique position and a unique place in God's kingdom. Instead, step back and say, what is my place and what is my position? And, and what, 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 what equipping do I need from God to fulfill that? And long for it and pursue it. Yes, Wendell. You have to be a little bit careful, though, because you can cover the things that God wants for you for your own sake from selfish motives. You only want those things because you can use them for him to help others. Yes, yes. But if you if rightly desire those things, those things will always change you to be like Christ. If you really desire them, rather than desire the power that they might give. So when, when Satan says in, in, um, in Isaiah, uh, I want to be like the Most High God, if he really wanted to be like the Most High God, then he'd be like Philippians, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant, and he'd become more selfless rather than more self-promoting. So when he says, I want to be like the Most High God, that was a lie. He really didn't want to be like the Most High God. If you're using those gifts, if you're using those gifts for others, then yes, you should be more loving and whatnot, but or more like him, but more like him in that you're using all these gifts for someone else. It's not for your benefit. So back to that. So something I skipped off of the uh, Sunday's lesson, and this is uh, the question of the law of exertion and and uh, the more you give, the more you will receive. Principle. There's another law that has to balance here, though, and that's the law of restoration. Restoration. What's the law of rest oration? That as a finite being, which we are, God's infinite, as finite beings, when you expend a resource, like energy and helping someone, compassion, empathy, time, even money, when it's a finite being with finite resource, after expending an energy, you must rest and recover in order to have more energy to expend. If you don't rest... And recover, if in other words, you must receive in order to give. We don't have love. We must receive the love from God in order to share that love with others. Okay? And if we expend love, but we don't spend time with God to receive more, then we will exhaust ourselves and not be able to help anyone. So one of the devil's tricks with good-hearted people, the people he can't get to just go out and live selfishly, is to get them to be this mindset where I'm so other-centered, I am so have to help other people, I can't take any time for self, so they burn themselves out and they exhaust. But even Jesus Christ took time away from the needy masses to rest, to meditate, to rejuvenate, because he was in a finite body with finite abilities, and the law of restoration was at work. And so we are given prescriptions for rest, to rejuvenate, to recover. Yes? Well, this is back on your previous one. Um, that's what concerns me about the currently popular prosperity gospel. You know, um, you have a right to prosperity. And I, I am, and then in other parts of the Bible it says it's hard for rich people to be saved. Because it's tempting then to use that prosperity for your security advice yes. instead of God. And so it really concerns me that that's got to be a very popular thing and I think used by Satan even to tempt people away from God to the security of, of prosperity. So, thank you for that. 
Um, let's, let's, let's look at uh, the third paragraph. If one didn't know better, one could think that the advertising industry got its paradigm example of how to sell its products from the Eden story. The devil presented the fruit of the forbidden tree in a way that cr- uh, to create in Eve a desire to want more than she already had and to make uh, her think that she needed something she really didn't. How brilliant. Her fall is a demonstration of the three steps each of us take when we fall into covetousness. I see, I want, I take. Do you agree or disagree? There, I'm going to suggest to you they have misdiagnosed the problem. This is out of uh, Review and Herald, uh, January 9, 1886. See if you agree with this commentator and see, what, see if you agree with what they, this person says. Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief in that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors. What caused the change according to this author? Believing a lie. Satan is the father of? Now, was his primary lie with the fruit? Well, the fruit is really healthy for you, and it really tastes good. It was the primary lie, did God really say that you will die? Oh, no, you won't. So is the primary lie about the fruit, or is the primary lie about what God said? Yes, the primary lie here is not about the fruit. The primary lie is God can't be trusted in what he told you. You can't trust him. He's trying to keep you down. Uh, he, he really doesn't have your best interest at heart. See, lies believed, remember we've gone through this cascade, break the circle of love and trust. You believe your spouse is cheating, even though they're not, but you believe they are. What happens in your heart? Something in you changes. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust this person anymore. I think they're not interested in my welfare anymore. They're, they're actually going to just use me. Uh, therefore, I'm fearful. Now, I've got to watch out for myself. And so we see what happens here. Instead, she's got fear and selfishness in her heart. She doesn't trust God to have her best interest anymore because she believes lies about him. And so there's, an, there's this fruit that's available purporting to, to offer this incredible knowledge and elevate her to a godlike status. Well, what's the natural thing to do then in that state is to reach out and protect yourself and advance yourself, which is what she did. The primary thing wasn't this fruit is so intoxicating and so beautiful and so amazing. The primary thing was, and so it wasn't, I see, I want I take, it was, I fear, I need, I take. Russell. For those who haven't really delved into this, man, it's very it's fascinating. The lie actually began when Satan said, did God say you may not eat of any of the trees? That's right. Fruit of the trees of the garden? Yep. Which, you know, he's implying or in that question that God is being restricted. Right. God is, is out to keep you from from some sort of hidden blessing. And Eve corrected him. No, no, no. He said, there's only one tree maybe we may not eat of. And it, it went from there. So it's fascinating uh, how he crafted that. that uh, so, yes, no, I agree with you. That's exactly, but the, the, you're, you're emphasizing the lie was about God. Still in the lie. And once you don't trust God... And you don't trust him with your future. You don't trust him with your health. You don't trust him with your marriage. You don't trust him with any. Then you're afraid. And fear leads us to self-protection, survival drives. Adam, as soon as Adam sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And so it's, I fear, and fear-based decision-making leads to selfish decision-making. I've got to protect self. I've got to advance self. I've got to find for self. Love, perfect love, casts out Fear. I love God. I love others more than self. I'll sacrifice self. I'll put self in a difficult position because I love that person. I want, want their good. It's opposite motivation. Neurobiologically, it's op- opposite circuits as well. And when your love circuits fire in your brain, it turns off your fear circuits. 
Wednesday's lesson. First two sentences said, for, for us as fallen beings, greed can be as easy as breathing and just as natural. Now, I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, here in a sinful world, our car- carnal nature, selfishness and greed, uh, without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, it's just something we do automatically. It's, kind of, it's natural for the sinful heart to do this. And they are exactly right. That's exactly true. But how is greed not like breathing? See, breathing requires... We choose to. Breathing is natural. The point here is that greed is natural to the sinful heart. We're all greedy and selfish without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how they're making the, the similarity. Where they're not similar is breathing requires that you give away carbon dioxide in order to get the oxygen. And every breath you're giving back. You're giving back with every breath. This is part of the law of love that got built into nature. Greed would be more analogous to, if you really wanted to do the analogy, tying a plastic bag over your head and selfishly hoarding your carbon dioxide to yourself. It breaks God's design and results in ruin and death. So it's natural in the sense, without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that's all we really can do is be selfish and greedy, looking out for self. But it's not natural in the sense that it's how life is designed. It actually results in ruin and death. Reading is necessary for life. Correct. In fact, it brings death. It says in the third paragraph, notice Judas' words, and it talks about Judas um, because of 30 pieces of silver. I'm not going to read the paragraph, but they make the point that he he, he betrayed Jesus because he was greedy and wanted 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to kind of have to go quick because there's a big point in Friday's lesson I want to get to, and we never get to Friday. Um, but, But I'm going to suggest to you that Judas was greedy, no question, but his greed was way deeper and more complex than 30 pieces of silver. Do do you believe, do you think Judas Judas believed Jesus was a fraud, a con man, and thus turning him over to authorities was a righteous act? No. No, he believed Jesus was the Son of God. Okay, get your mind around that. So do you think believing Jesus was the Son of God, he said, but you know what, that's the Son of God. Well, that's worth 30 pieces of silver. He's only after 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound credible to anybody here? No. 30 pieces of silver were expedient. He says, in addition to what I'm really going for, I can get 30 pieces of silver along the way. But 30 pieces of silver were not what he was after. What was he after? Judas believed that Jesus was the son of God, but Judas did not understand God's character, God's methods, God's designs, God's laws. In other words, Judas didn't understand the kingdom of God, and he viewed the kingdom of God as operating like the kingdoms of the world. And he wanted Jesus to take the rod of iron, and to take the throne of David, and to overthrow the evil powers with might and power, to destroy the Herod, to destroy the Roman rulers, and to rule. He thought that Jesus was a little too naive, and if cornering him like this, where they arrested him, he expected Jesus to use his power to finally take the throne. And then Judas is going to step up next to him, put his arm around him, and said, hey, you're welcome, buddy. You needed me. That was his plan, to be the, the prime minister under Jesus' new earthly government. He wasn't looking for 30 pieces of silver. And the problem, of course, was not understanding what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. He doesn't rule that way. He doesn't use that method. How many Christians are looking for the same God that Judas was worshiping today? And you hear it preached all the time that Jesus is coming back with a rod of iron to punish the nations. And he's going he's gonna, to, in that day, he's going to use Roman's power and Rome's methods. And how many people in the end are going to end up just like Judas? Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We performed miracles in your name. Jesus said, get ye hench, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they then pray for the mountains to fall on them 
and hide them from him who sits on the throne. They don't want to live in his presence any more than Judas wanted to stay alive in the presence of Jesus. And then we're going to jump. I don't have time um, to go into some really cool things in Thursday's lesson, but Friday's lesson. Friday's lesson talks about the very top sentence. The ultimate human goal is to be happy and satisfied. And I'm going to tell you, um, well, where does happiness come from? And I'm going to tell you, happiness is a byproduct of something else. Just like sawdust is a byproduct of woodworking, you cannot get sawdust directly. You can only get sawdust as a byproduct of working with wood. Whether it's you or the termites, it doesn't matter. You can't go out in nature and find sawdust directly. It's a byproduct. Happiness is a byproduct of, here's the key, of healthiness in all domains. When you're physically unwell, are you happy? When you're relationally unwell, conflicts with your spouse or kids, are you happy? When you're psychologically unwell, I'm no good, I can't do anything right, everybody, everybody hates me, are you happy? When you're spiritually unwell, weighed down with guilt and shame, are you happy? While you cannot achieve happiness by going for happiness, you can absolutely, intellectually, and purposely choose healthiness. Where in my life can I be healthier? Where in my life am I actually out of harmony with the laws of health, physical laws, spiritual laws, relational laws? Where am I breaking those designs for God, for, for health? And, and when you move towards healthiness, you experience happiness. That's what happens. The devil, though, tricks people, here's the big trick of the devil, into substituting for happiness, pleasure-seeking. I'll seek pleasure. I'm not happy. So what I do, I'll pleasurize myself. And they seek alcohol. They seek drugs. It's thrill-seeking, entertainment, sex and porn, shopping, gambling. They're seeking something to pleasurize themselves as a substitute because they're unhappy. But all of those types of behaviors only violate design laws and make them more unhealthy and they're less happy and therefore they seek more pleasure. And it's a spiral down. The only way out is the truth. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are such an amazing God who is so beautiful and who sent Jesus not only to reveal the truth, but to achieve what we never could, perfection in humanity. We ask that the Spirit will take all of Christ's achievements and reproduce it in us, that we have new hearts, new motives, new desires, that we exchange our unrighteousness for your righteousness, that our, our terminal condition for your eternal life, give us the eye salve of discernment that we can see and understand and comprehend the truths of your kingdom, that we might witness it in this coming year, that the world would be lighted, and, and let 2018 be the year you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you.